Linda and I spent a few days at the beach. I love the coast. I enjoy the sounds, the sights, the smells, everything about it. But one of the things that is intriguing to me is that it is the area where the fresh water from the rivers intermingles with the salt waters of the sea. The salt water presses its way into the fresh water, and there it creates a new and different environment. In a way, that is a picture to me as to what is happening in our land and perhaps in the world today. There are two philosophies that are intermingling, that are coming together, and they are creating a new environment. There is the modern era that is intermingling with the postmodern era, at least that's what they're called. I grew up in what is called the modern era. We understood family when I was growing up as being a husband and wife, mother and father and children. I suppose our vision of family was depicted in Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, those programs that were on television at that time. In the schools when I was growing up, the day would begin with a salute to the flag. There was a prayer. And sometimes during the year, the Gideons would give Bibles to those students who had memorized certain verses. There was little discipline issues when I was growing up in school. The reason for that is because the parents and the teachers teamed up against the students. And if a student was in trouble at school, that student was in trouble at home. I never wanted my parents to find out when I got in trouble at school. I never wanted them to know that I had gotten a spanking at school, and and I did on occasion. In fact, my senior year, I think I got the hardest spanking I ever received in my life from Mrs. Kazee. She didn't know I was a senior, obviously, an adult. But if, if one got in trouble at school, then one was in trouble at home. Therefore, there were no discipline or very few discipline issues. Religiously, we were overwhelmingly Christian. In the little town where I grew up, most everyone was either Baptist or Methodist, and most everyone went to church on Sunday. So that was the modern era, the era in which I grew up and the era in which many of you grew up. But now then we are seeing this postmodern era mingle, intermingle with the modern era, and a new environment is being created. It's difficult today to define what is family. reason for that is because in the modern era, family was defined, was understood based on Scripture. Today, the basis for family is love. There was an op-ed in the newspaper this last week saying that South Carolinians need to accept this new standard, the standard of love. And if people love each other, then that is justification, that is reason, that is a right for marriage. Now, if we continue to go in this direction, then in the future there are going to be many different 
understandings of family or family structures. There, I, I think in the future, there will be the traditional family as, as I understand it. Husband, wife, children. And the church will promote that. So I think that's going to be there. If we continue in this direction, there will also be homosexual families because it is my understanding, according to studies that have been done, polls that have been stated, that 60% of Americans believe that same-sex marriage should be legal. And then there are going to be multiple spouses, maybe one husband, four or five wives. I don't know why. We can't take care of the one that we have, but, you know, that there, there are those who are going to want that and, and so forth. Now, you might say, well, no, I, I don't think that is going to happen. Yes, it is. And the reason is because if marriage is based only on love, then no relationship can be denied. It just cannot. If it is, if it is based on people loving each other, and that is the rationale, that is the reason, then no relationship can be denied. The schools today are different as well. In many schools, there is no pledge of allegiance. There is no prayer. And certainly, the Gideons are not handing out Bibles. And if such a thing were to happen, then there would be a lawsuit filed. Religion is changing. We are rapidly becoming a secular people. also seems to me that the fundamental question of these two philosophies are different. For instance, in the modern era, the fundamental question was why? Why is this happening? In the postmodern era, the fundamental question is what? It is more of a pragmatic response. So what do we do about it? doesn't matter why it's happening. It's happening. So what do we do about it? Now, let me show you how that plays out. For instance, with drugs. When when young people become involved in drugs in the modern era, the question would have been, why? Why are they doing this? Why? But in the modern era, the postmodern era, the question is, what? what do we do about it? They are doing it, so what do we do about it? Well, let's, let's give them clean needles so they won't have disease. And uh, someone would say, well, why don't we legalize it and tax it so we can increase the coffers of the state? And so the question then is a question of what? Concerning promiscuity in the modern era, the question would have been why? Why is this happening? In the postmodern era, the question is what? What do you do about it? And so they say, okay, let's teach our children to protect themselves from disease and unwanted pregnancy. So there's a difference between why and what? Violence. In the modern era, the question would have been, why? Why is this happening? And in the postmodern era, the question is, what? What do we do about it? There is violence. We live in a violent society. What do we do about it? Well, we put more policemen on the streets. We put up more security cameras, things of that nature. So it seems to me that as these two philosophies intermingle, as they come together, they ask a different question. The modern era asks, why? And the postmodern era, it seems to me, asks what? A more pragmatic response. The thing that's interesting to me as I look at society and what is happening to it today, it's comparable to the day of Jeremiah. If you look in your Bibles in Jeremiah chapter 8, we will, we will see that. Beginning in verse number 1. 
At that time, declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the king of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priest and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their graves. And they will spread them out to the sun, the moon, and to all the host of heaven which they have loved and which they have served and which they have gone after and which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They will not be gathered or buried. They will be as dung on the face of the ground. And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family that remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course like a horse charging into the battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. And the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush Observe the time of their migration, but my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. Now, the Lord here is speaking to the prophet about the condition of Israel. And in this chapter, there are four questions of why. I want us to look at these whys today. The first why is found in verse number 5, and the question is asked, why have they turned away? Look there at verse 5. Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? All right? Now, that was a question to the people of Jeremiah's day, but it's a question for us. Why has this people turned away from their heritage? Why has this people turned away from their God? Now, we can ask that question, and it seems to me that the beginning of our turning away largely came in the landmark Supreme Court decision of 1963 when essentially prayer was removed from the schools and later the public arena. The invocation that was struck down, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependency upon you And beg your blessings on us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Now, there were four offending petitions. Bless the students. Boy, I can't do that. That would be unconstitutional to pray, bless the students. Now, we were very naive in believing that it was going to stop at that point, but we did. We didn't like the decision that was rendered but believed that it would stop there. It did not. 1980, there was another court decision that dealt with posting the Ten Commandments in the classroom. It was Stone versus Graham. Now, here's the ruling. If posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, if we post... Ten Commandments, if they had any effect at all, it would be to induce children to meditate upon them and perhaps obey 
And this is not permissible. The First Amendment protects it. Okay, so you can't pray for God to bless the students. That would be unconstitutional. Bless the parents. Can't do that. That would be unconstitutional. What has happened since then? Well, we know what has happened to the family. Half of marriages ends in divorce. We know that 40% of the children born are born out of wedlock. We know that child abuse is epidemic, but we can't pray for the Lord to bless the parents because that would be unconstitutional. Bless the teachers. Can't do that. You can't pray for the Lord to bless the teachers. So what has happened? Well, we have, in many school environments, it's almost impossible for the teacher to teach and for learning to happen. Because the teachers, as I talk to teachers, oftentimes, and God bless them, I, I'm, I'm thankful for those who know the Lord and are doing the best that they can in a very difficult situation. But what happened is that we moved the Bible out of the classroom and we put in metal detectors and it hasn't worked out that well, but we're being constitutional. Bless the country. Can't do that. What has happened since then? Well, I need not go into a litany of that. You already know. You already know what has happened to our country, so I'll, I'll not comment on that. We know what has happened, but why? Why did it? See, that, that, that's the question that is asked. Why have they turned away from me? Why have they turned away from me? Why have we turned away from God? Well, he tells us, he says, they are without knowledge in verse number 7. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. Isn't it ironic that this country was built on the Word of God, and yet today the people do not know? The Word of God. They do not have knowledge of God's Word. And in an argument or a discussion today, if someone makes their point based on the Word of God, they are dismissed as ignorant, bigoted, or out of step with history. I'm sick of hearing that. They're out of step with history. Why? Because they believe the Word of God. Without knowledge. And then he says they're without wisdom. Verse number 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? And behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? Ladies and gentlemen, without the word of God, we do not have wisdom. We may have knowledge about a lot of subjects, but we do not have wisdom apart from the Word of God. So he said, why did they do this? Why did they turn away? He says, because they are without knowledge. They don't know the Word of God. They are without wisdom because they don't know the Word of God. And they are without shame. Look at verse number 12. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed 
and they, and they did not know how to blush, therefore they shall fall among those who fall. Well, there is certainly no shame in sin today. In fact, it is celebrated. There'll be television programs and movies and magazines and books and so forth that are presented celebrating sin. And those who sin oftentimes are told that they are courageous for doing so. Courageous for standing against the Word of God, for taking a position against the Word of God. And so then he says, thus they are without the blessings of God. Verse number 13. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vines and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall wither, and what I have given them shall pass away. Folks, I believe with all of my heart that when we turn away from the Lord and His Word, we turn away and forfeit the blessings of God. Now, we can ask the question, why is it that we are so insecure in the world today? I mean, there are threats all around us, and seemingly we are very vulnerable and insecure. Why is that? In my opinion, it probably is because God has removed His protective hand. Not sure it's complete, but I do believe that it's happening. That God is removing His protective hand. We asked the question about the economy. Why is it that the things that are happening are happening? It could be because we have rejected the Lord. So the question is, why they turned away? And then He tells us, no knowledge, no wisdom. Because they've rejected the Word of God. Second question is, why are you sitting still? Verse number 14 Why are we sitting still? Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities and let us perish there. Now we know what is happening, but why do we sit still and do nothing? Are are you as amazed as I am that there are as many of us as there are, and yet we have no more influence than we have? How can that be? How can that be? Why are you sitting still? Why are we not involved? Why are we content to sit still when we watch our beloved nation in spiritual trouble? Well, I think the reason is many are intimidated by misunderstanding of the Establishment Clause, the separation of church and state. Dr. Archie Ellis, former pastor of this church, preached a message June the 23rd, 1963. He said, now I think all Baptists agree with the general principle of the separation of church and state as guaranteed by the First Amendment. But the amendment is meant simply to forbid the growth of a state-supported church. It has nothing to do with religious people's right to acknowledge God in their public life and to install non-sectarian religious exercises in public schools. That's what he said in 1963. You see, our history has not reflected the hostile attitude towards Christianity that we see today. As a matter of fact, when the states were established and they wrote their charter, they reflected in their charters their commitments to God. And I'm not just talking about southern states. Rhode Island, 
Established in 1683, the charter reads, We submit ourselves, our lives, our estates unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to all those perfect and most absolute laws given in His holy word. Maryland, their charter reads, Formed by a pious zeal to extend the Christian gospel. Delaware, charter reads, form for the further propagation of the holy gospel. Connecticut, charter reads, preserve the purity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But today there is hostility towards Christianity. This country, our states were established upon Christianity, but today there's hostility towards it. Let me go back to the prophetic sermon preached by Dr. Ellis. Getting back for a moment to the larger issues facing our nation, there is a greater danger than a handful of atheists who are trying to restrict the free exercise of religion of American people as a whole. The larger peril is the American Civil Liberties Union, which is organizing a systematic and powerful campaign to erase religious distinctives from American life. Now it is the phrase, one nation under God, in the pledge to the flag. Listen to this. Tomorrow it may be the Christmas holidays or the chaplaincies in the armed services or the Bible in the courtroom. He preached that message in 1963. It was prophetic, and we have seen his words fulfilled. But we sit in apathy. Why do you sit still? Why is that? Well, I think because of some subtle reasons. First of all, scriptural morality has been marginalized as it has been presented as a partisan issue. If one holds to a biblical morality, then we are told, well, that person has taken this political position. So we don't want to be political. We don't want to do that. So we shy away from Christian morality. Very subtle. Another thing that has happened to us that is also subtle, we are oftentimes told that freedom of worship is important that a nation is stronger, a country is stronger, where there is freedom of worship. But in our history, it has not been freedom of worship that has been emphasized. It has been freedom of religion. And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, freedom of worship means that you and I can assemble together as we have done today, that I can preach the message that I preach. We can believe whatever we choose to believe. That's freedom of worship. You can pray. You can sing. We can read God's Word. We can do all those things. That is freedom of worship. Freedom of religion means that I can practice what I believe. It means that I can, freedom of worship, I can believe what I choose, but freedom of religion means that I can leave this building and practice what I believe. That's the reason that you're not hearing about freedom of religion today. It is freedom of worship. Oh, it's wonderful to have freedom of worship. Believe whatever you wish, but keep it inside the building. 
freedom of religion takes it outside the building. As a result of that, we have been intimidated and lost our love and commitment to the Lord Jesus like the people in the church in Ephesus, and therefore we've lost our influence. Why are you sitting still? Third question is why have we provoked God in verse number 19. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images with foreign idols? Why have you provoked me, God asked. And he said, because you have shared my glory with graven images and foreign idols. That is exactly what happened in the ancient Roman Empire when they went out and captured another country, another nation, another city. Then they would take the gods, because it was polytheistic, they would take the gods of this pagan country or city, place it in the pantheon, which was fine with the pagans because they were polytheistic. As long as my God is in there, that's fine. Put my God alongside the rest of them. That's fine because they believed in polytheism. Many gods, hundreds of gods problem for the Christians because the Christian says there's only one God and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. So they became martyrs as a result of it. Today we are told we must share his glory because we live in a pluralistic society. We must be tolerant. Folks, we've always been tolerant. That's not the issue. It is not tolerance that is asked for. It is acceptance. It is acceptance of things contrary to the Word of God. And that is what is demanded by our society today. Why do you provoke me, God asks? Fourth question. Why are we not restored? Verse number 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? We pray for revival. We've prayed for revival, Steve. We've asked the Lord. We sing. All those things. We pray for revival, asking, why don't we have revival? Is it too late? There are some who believe that. We've gone too far that there is not going to be revival, that it's too late for our country. It's too late for restoration is there no bomb in Gilead and there were those who would say no there is no spiritual cure is there no physician to call us back to God is there no one to call us back to God no healing no revival no hope I disagree with that I think this must be the time for revival I think this must be the time when we turn back to God Now, I do think that we are on the precipice. I do think this is a critical time. But I do believe that this is the time when many of you are understanding how serious our condition is. How can we do it? We're going to have to engage our culture. We cannot sit in apathy. We cannot be disengaged. We cannot say it's a dirty business. It's evil. I'm not going to be involved. We must turn the world upside down as did the disciples. And the only way we can do that is to be engaged. You must be engaged. We can't say I'm not going to participate. 
We must be engaged, and secondly, we must sow God's Word. We must abandon political correctness because it is killing us and is making liars out of us. We must sow the Word of God unapologetically, not with a mean spirit, but being honest and faithful to it. It is the Word of God, and we must pray. We sang a while ago with my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. We must have an humble spirit. We must pray. We must seek God and turn from our sin so that God would heal our land. Going back to the coast. As the salt water from the ocean moves into the fresh water of the rivers, it threatens the drinking supply. As it gets further and further into the freshwater rivers, it threatens the drinking supply. As the world moves into the church, as the world moves into our society and into your hearts, it threatens our future. And it threatens our hope. Thus, we must return to God. And the question is asked, so why are we sitting still? What will you do? I believe that this is a critical juncture in the history of America. And we may not have much time left. We therefore must have revival. Why are you sitting still? Our gracious Father, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with the truth of your word. Lord, that we might not be content to sit still, but we will be engaged. We will sow the word of God. We will pray. We will repent. Lord, we'll follow after you with abandon, no matter the cost, no matter what anyone else does. Father, I pray that today there might be those young men, young women, Old men, old women, children, who will say, Here am I, send me. As for me, I will serve the Lord. I pray, Lord, your blessings upon this invitation in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The invitation will be extended. If you're here without Christ, I pray today that you'll receive him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. But I hope that a whole lot of you today will say from this point forward, I will live my life for the Lord Jesus. If you want to come and kneel and pray, you do that. But I hope you'll make that commitment. Stand with me, please, as they sing. You come, I'll greet you as you do.